Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of Until Saturday. I'm Ari Wasserman, joined by Chris Fanini and our great Michigan writer, Austin Meek. Uh, it's a pretty big show because one of the best, biggest personalities in college football and Jim Harbaugh has taken the job uh, with the Los Angeles Chargers. And that's a huge shift, both for the national championship winning team, but also the sport at hand. We're going to go deep into legacy, what it means moving forward for Michigan, all sorts of different stuff. We're going to get into Ryan Williams's commitment, the first five-star commitment for Kalen DeBoer at Alabama. We're going to get into the ACC schedule, and we have a bunch of mailbag questions. I know we've been saying a lot that we were going to get to them. Today is the day we're going to play some of those. So first, let me just welcome our guests in here real quick. Chris, how are we doing today? Good, man. It's been rainy here in Dallas for you and me, but the sun's starting to come up, and uh, boy, there's no shortage of anything to talk about. Technically, we're in the offseason, right? We're like barely two weeks from the national championship game. There's been like 50 things that have happened in the sport since then. Last night, I went to a musical for the first time in my life because my wife's mother invited us. It was a Tina Tina Turner musical. It was actually pretty cool. Um, but I was like talking to her because as we were walking out the door, we had a crying baby and, you know, Jim Harbaugh left. I just said, moving forward, the national championship game isn't the end of the season. Like it's not till mid February, probably that we're going to get to that point. Austin, I'm sure you feel that way too. I mean, that was completely my nightmare, Ari, that I would be sitting in like a Tina Turner musical (laughs) and an Adam Schefter tweet would pop on my phone that Jim Harbaugh is leaving. And it would just be like a nightmare. Um, So it it was weird because like it was the most expected thing that possibly could have happened. And also when it happened, it was just like hard to believe because we've been waiting for it for so long for it to actually happen. It was just like, is this real? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, um, you know, in my certain phase of life, the hours between 530 and 730 are very challenging for me. Just in general, like the baby comes home from daycare and bath time and all that stuff. And every single thing that happens, Nick Saban retiring, all this, it always happens right in that window when I'm at the peak of anxiety. But here we are a day later. Let me formally introduce everybody to the Until Saturday show. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please help support the show by dropping a five-star review. If you do so, we will try to get your Uh, questions that are asked in those reviews read on the show. We're going to try to do that today and also subscribe to the until Saturday YouTube channel. If you're here right now watching live, we certainly appreciate you. If you're listening in podcast form and you're interested in seeing us live, also be sure to subscribe to that, that channel, both links to the podcast and the YouTube channel can be found in both shows descriptions and moving forward. If you want to be included in the shows uh, that are similar to this one, in which we play your voicemails, be sure to leave those voicemails on the Until Saturday phone line at 316-462-9852. Okay, first, let's get down to business. Jim Harbaugh goes to the NFL. Austin, I'll start with you. You wrote a tremendous column about Jim Harbaugh's legacy and you know what this all means for Michigan 
right when it happened. You had a few days to get it ready, but it was tremendous. I suggest everybody go read it. What were your initial thoughts um, of this actually finally happening, Austin? You know, I think the natural reaction for a lot of fans is is to wonder what went wrong with Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. You know, two weeks ago, he was saying he wanted to be buried as a Michigan man, and now he's leaving Michigan. And anytime a coach leaves, there's always some finger pointing and some hard feelings and, and people asking, like, what, what did Michigan screw up that Jim Harbaugh is leaving? And I get that, and I think it's a natural reaction, and certainly there were things that Michigan could have done differently through the years. But I guess when I took a step back from it, it was like, Michigan and Jim Harbaugh made it nine years together and nine years is a long time in Jim Harbaugh's world. You know, I've talked to like staffers through the, through the years who talk about Harbaugh years. Cause it's just almost like a different time scale with Jim Harbaugh. Like he wears people down. You know, that was the reputation he had when he came to Michigan and it took a lot of effort for Michigan and Jim Harbaugh to make it nine years together and to get that last moment, the national championship and the parade and, uh, you know, it, it's hard to see him leave, I'm sure, for a lot of Michigan fans. But I think you also got to take a step back and say, like, they got to the finish line. They won a national championship. That was what everybody dreamed of when Jim Harbaugh came to Michigan. It looked for a long time that it was not going to happen. Nobody back in 2020 would have said, yeah, Jim Harbaugh is going to win a national championship at Michigan. But somehow they fi- found a way to stick it out together long enough for that to happen. And I, I think that that in some ways makes makes the whole thing worthwhile. Austin, do you think there really was anything Michigan could have done to keep him? I never like the NFL can offer him a chance at a Super Bowl. He has said that is the thing he wants to do. So I, I always thought it was weird. I know like, you know, Michigan was leaking out certain things that they were giving Harbaugh what he wanted here and there. And the ver- up to the very last day, we give him everything he wanted. So when he goes away, we don't look so bad. I never understood that whole thing because... I didn't think there was any chance he was really going to stay as long as he got an NFL offer and a good NFL offer, which I think the Chargers job is. Am I misreading that? Was this negotiating contract drama over the last couple of weeks overblown? No, I I think you're on target. I, I think both sides were probably trying to set the narrative a little bit of whose fault it was when he left. Jim Harbaugh trying to say, like, look, there are these things that I wanted that I didn't get. Uh, and maybe that people would say, well, that's why he left. And from Michigan's perspective saying, look at all these things we're giving him and he's still leaving. I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. If you could, if you could build a time machine and go back in time, there's probably some things that Michigan could have done differently, maybe to, um, to, to not have gotten to this point. But I also think Chris, you're right. That ultimately it came down to the fact that Jim Harbaugh had unfinished business in the NFL. He said that he, he talked about that two years ago when he interviewed with the Vikings, that being five yards away from winning a Super Bowl with the 49ers was something that he never really got over. And I think if you strip away everything else, the contract drama, uh, all of the rumors and the, you know, the palace intrigue of, of Jim Harbaugh, that's what it came down to. He wanted to win a Super Bowl. He never would have let that go. He, he, it always would have bothered him if he didn't get another chance to do that and all the other stuff, I think it's kind of ancillary to, to really Jim Harbaugh's desire to coach again in the NFL. You know, w- during that nine year tenure and you alluded to it in your column and both on this podcast here, Austin, but the range of emotions when it came to who he was, um, and how he went about his job are so varying from year to year. You know, at the beginning, 
I, I thought that there was a, a chance that he could be kind of revolutionary in the sense that he was doing these satellite camps. Um, you know, he was kind of going and doing things that other people weren't doing, saying things um, other people weren't doing, antagonizing other coaches on on Twitter. If you remember those days, like it's been a long time, but it, it seems like yesterday to me. Then there were the bad years. Then you have the cheating stuff. Then you have the national championship. When you think about like a coach's tenure, every single range of emotion that a fan could have toward their head coach, I'm sure that Michigan fans experience, which I think is you know, for us and, and just the entertainment product of the sport, a tremendous thing. But here's kind of last night when when I saw that this was happening, the first thing I thought of, um, and you wrote about his complicated legacy. But when you think about college football in the hiring process, and you think about how many times a program has either hired or attempted to hire a slam dunk candidate, sometimes that means somebody who played for the school that they're being hired for or excelled on the field for that school. Sometimes it means they won a national championship somewhere else. Um, the no doubt about it type hires, like the Tom Hermans to Texas, um, the Scott Frost to Nebraska, Jimbo Fisher to A&M. There's a lot of them that just did not work the way that you would have thought they would work when they were hired. Um, and for a while there, it felt like it wasn't going to work with Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. And that was the biggest slam dunk, maybe outside of Ohio State Ur- hiring Urban Meyer the last 20 years. Um, but he is one of the few instances when it's all said and done of a person, though it took a little bit longer than people would have liked to not only meet the expectations and the hype that came with his hiring, but to exceed those expectations. Because I'm not even sure if you asked Jim Harbaugh at the beginning of his tenure, and maybe I'm wrong about this, um, you know, are you going to win a national championship? Like the, the narrative, if you remember, at the beginning was try to beat Ohio State again and maybe win the Big Ten every now and then. It wasn't to beat Ohio State three years in a row go win a four-team playoff, uh, beat the crap out of Alabama, and win the national championship. So I think that those have been exceeded. But the thing that I take away the most is that he restored a rivalry that was as good as dead five years ago. So I think the cheating stuff we have to get into. Um, But when you think about what he accomplished in that nine years from where he started to where the program finally reached, I think it was an immeasurable success. And kudos to him and Michigan fans for getting to experience that. Yeah, I think the only way to remember Jim Harbaugh's tenure at Michigan is is as a success. I was one of the people four years ago saying like, hey, you know, people maybe need to adjust their expectations for mm-hmm. what Jim Harbaugh is. Like compare him to James Franklin and it looks pretty good. Uh, maybe don't compare him to Nick Saban or whatever. And, you know, to his credit, like after that, he became the coach that, all of the most optimistic Michigan fans thought he was going to be like, if you would have found the most optimistic Michigan fan alive in 2015 and said, what does Jim Harbaugh's Michigan look like? They would have said 40 and three, three straight big 10 championships, three straight wins against Ohio state and national championship. Like that's the most any Michigan fan I think could have dreamed of with Jim Harbaugh. I I certainly didn't think that we would see this. Um, I mean, it, it really is. I think you're right. Ari, it's it's a it's a unique situation in college football. I mean, it's just you know how many active head coaches are there now in college football with national championships? Nick Saban's gone, Jim Harbaugh's gone, right? Like it's a very it's what, it's, it's very Dabble, small Dabo Sweeney, Sweeney and Brown, Kirby Smart and Mac Brown and Mac Brown yep. is probably it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that tells you what the odds are of hiring a head coach who's going to win a national championship at your school, and especially a school like Michigan, which you know. 
Michigan didn't win national championships when Bo Schembechler was there. And I think, you know, to your point, Ari, like um, when Jim Harbaugh came, it was about, we want to beat Ohio state and we want to win the big 10 and, and national championships for Michigan were, you know, even another, you know, aspiration um, to strive for that, that, you know, was at the very far end of what Michigan could have dreamed of, but, but Jim Harbaugh made it happen. And I don't think you can consider that anything but a success. But, but before we get into the cheating stuff and how that impacts his legacy, I do think Jim Harbaugh has a good case as Michigan's greatest coach of the modern era, more than Lloyd Carr, more than Bo Schembechler, because of what he did and where he left it. Um, Bo Schembechler never won a national championship. He didn't win a ton of Rose Bowls either. He also had the Robert Anderson stuff that, you know, is a whole other issue that we've talked about many times. Lloyd Carr won a national championship, but he also saw the program deteriorate toward the end of his time. He lost the rivalry to Ohio State. That's when Ohio State started to t- take over. Jim Harbaugh brought it back. He took the rivalry back. He won the national championship. He did it in an era when you couldn't have 100 scholarship players like you could back in the day. He did it in an era when you had to win 15 games. You had to play a two-team playoff, a Big Ten championship game, something something the other coaches never had to deal with. So I, I think Jim Harbaugh leaves Michigan with a very good case as uh, one of its greatest coaches ever, like not maybe like fielding Yost era a hundred years ago and whatnot, but like of the modern era, he's got a pretty good case. Yeah. And maybe one of the most successful coaches of the modern era in general, because of, you know, winning a national championship and how hard that is. I mean, how many great teams um, are good enough to win one and then don't because of certain circumstances. And there were certainly plenty of those, one of those circumstances being one of those circumstances being Nick Saban existing, you know, yeah. like he is the greatest coach of all time. And so many great teams have fallen short because of him. And this Michigan team beat Nick Saban and sent him into retirement. Austin. So I just kind of gave my premise about how I viewed the Jim Harbaugh era and how it ended. And listen, I was a guy who, who would sit on this podcast three years ago and say he should be fired. Uh, I thought it was over for him after the 2020 season. Um, and that turned out to be wrong. And then not only did he win a national championship, but he did it by building the roster his way. He didn't duplicate what Ohio State, Michigan, and Georgia did. He did it the Michigan way. But the obvious fan response to a lot of those sentiments are he had to cheat to get there. What is your take on this scandal that is still ongoing? The NCAA certainly did not get the last word because Jim Harbaugh's off to the NFL now. But how does that impact your viewpoint of the Harbaugh era and what they accomplished the last few years? Now, I think when you talk about Jim Harbaugh's tenure at Michigan, the two things you're going to talk about are the national championship and the Big Ten championships and the NCAA investigations. And which one of those you bring up first probably depends on whether you're a Michigan fan or not. <laughs> you know, And some people are going to bring up the NCAA stuff first. Um, I guess I would think about it like, you know, how do we think about Pete Carroll now at USC? Like, we certainly remember that Pete Carroll left USC under a cloud of NCAA uh, allegations, investigations. They they had to vacate some stuff, right? Like, that's going to be part of Pete Carroll's coaching bio forever. And I think it'll be the same thing for Michigan, depending on what what comes out of Michigan's NCAA cases. Um, but I don't think anybody at least I don't, when I think about Pete Carroll, I think 
he was a really damn good coach at USC and had some really great teams that were fun to watch. Like that's what I think about when I think about Pete Carroll. Um, and I suspect a lot of people will think about Jim Harbaugh the same way, but ultimately like that's, you know, it's kind of a personal, personal preference thing. Like if, if, if the NCAA stuff really bothers you, like I can't tell you, you know, not to, um, not to think about it that way. It's, it's just a matter of like, what's going to stick out in each person's mind. So, I have a, a message I want to send um, because I have a column that I just went up and, you know, the big Ohio State homer, I think, is is ruffling some feathers a little bit. But I actually truly believe this. If you are an Ohio State fan and you are internalizing everything that has happened over the course of the past two months or three months now as this only happened because they cheated, I just think that is intense bias like if you watch the games after the scandal happened the brunt of their schedule the only teams on that schedule that they could have conceivably lost to with or without whatever they were doing came after it and in sports sometimes your favorite team wins and sometimes your favorite team loses but if you're an Ohio State fan and your thought process is to just yell they screamed and and cry and you know throw a fit and a tantrum about you know, this is not fair because they cheated. I don't think that you're telling the truth. I don't think you're you're actually presenting the program that you root for the right way. I think that the response should be, damn, you know, they did it. They finally did it. That's our rival. We hate them. Next year, we're going to try to come back and, and get it back. Um, I just don't see the cheating thing, though significant, as the reason why Michigan won the championship. Now, that doesn't mean that the NCAA can't and shouldn't get involved. That doesn't mean that sanctions aren't coming. I don't know what's coming down the pike. And I'm not saying that cheating pays. But what I am saying is is that they will pay the consequences, uh, rightfully, for whatever it is that occurred. The They had a psychopath <laughs> wearing CMU gear with Ray-Bans on. Like, that happened. The stuff allegedly. Happened. Allegedly. Was, <laughs> allegedly. I mean, I, yeah, allegedly. Um. These things happen. There's enough proof there. Transgressions did happen. I'm not saying that you shouldn't think about it or discount it completely, but that is not how they won the national championship. And your temperament as a fan, in my opinion, should be my favorite team owns this rivalry and we're going to prove it again next year. Like that's, that's my take on that. Let me, let me come back to you with something. All right. But, but first I I do agree. I do agree that I, I, I don't put a, uh, asterisk or anything on that national championship. They won all their games post all the important games post Connor Stallions, some of them without Jim Harbaugh again, like they, they were penalized in season for it as well. I was sitting in the room with Charlie Baker, the NCAA president when he surprisingly told us that he thought Michigan won fair and square at the end while also explaining why the NCAA went to the big 10 with the information that it had. We don't know what all that information is. We will see. However, I do think part of everybody jumping on the Michigan was cheating bandwagon is because for many years, the Ohio State fan base heard from the Michigan fan base that Ohio State was a bunch of cheaters, whether it was Tattoo Gate, whether it was online classes for players, whatever. I think Ohio State fans have taken a lot of that from Michigan fans over the years. And for Michigan to be hit with two NCAA investigations, one over COVID recruiting, one over the scouting and that kind of thing. Like I understand why people outside of Michigan 
are ready to jump on Michigan and call you a cheater no matter what because the entire image of Michigan was built around we are above it all. We don't break the rules. We do but things I, the I right think that way. their penalty well, they won for the that, championship while also breaking the rules. Their penalty for that is I don't think you can say with a straight face anymore, hey, we do things the right way. Or hey, we're Michigan men and we're never going to break the rules. Like that is the punishment. So, you know, you're a fan. You can internalize this however you want to internalize it. But I think a rational, unpara- like unbiased mind would look at what Michigan did on the field and not equate to the scandal as the reason that that occurred. And if that if you're not in that camp with me, that's fine. I, I just I watched the games. They happened after this all came to light and Harbaugh wasn't on the sideline for half of them. I don't know. If, and, and listen, if the NCAA comes out in three or four months and shows us some information that we're unaware of that changes that viewpoint, then we'll re- re- revisit it. But for the time being, that's the case. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So Austin, before we get you out of here, we need to talk about the future a little bit because Michigan is the defending national champion. Um, they are going to be uh, finding a new head coach here pretty soon. So first, let's start off with, with candidates and, and what you view that would be fit wise for them. Yeah, I, mean, I think it'd be a shock if it's anybody but Sharon Moore. I, I could see it happening very quickly. I, how much time has Michigan had to prepare for this, right? They've had years to prepare for this. Uh, Sharon Moore had four games as the head coach. Everybody in the building believes in Sharon Moore and, and believes he should be the head coach. So to me, there's really not not any mystery. It's just a matter of like you know, crossing all the T's and dotting the I's to make Sharon Moore the head coach. Um, and hey, he's going to have a big he's going to have a big task. I mean, Ari, to your point, I think your take is the right one that if, if you're an Ohio state fan, like give up on trying to go back and like relitigate the past and just think about next season. The fact that and there's a lot of good things to think about there. I mean, like yeah, they just exactly. had the best off season you could have ever hoped for. Yeah, exactly. Like Ohio state is, is loading up and Michigan's got to replace a bunch of guys from this team, like 10 starters on offense. Right. And then you could have NCAA penalties that come into play. So what's done is done. Michigan won the national championship. I personally, I don't think there's really any, any point in debating, um, you know, whether it should be tarnished or not, but, but I think, and this also goes into the question about Jim Harbaugh's legacy where is Michigan in five years? Is is there anything that lingers here that that puts Sharon Moore, if he's the head coach, in a position where it's hard for him to win right away? Because I think that'll be part of Jim Harbaugh's legacy. Um, Michigan has, I think, the pieces to continue to be competitive, but it's going to be a it's going to be a big job. Um, and I think if it is Sharon Moore, he's going to have he's going to have a heavy lift to try to get this team 
in position to compete for a Big Ten championship next year. Yeah, so it does seem like um, it's a pretty open and shut case here. Um, And having somebody, I guess, come from inside the program, I do think is a little bit funny because you have a young assistant who has a ton of promise coming up through the coaching ranks who is probably going to be named uh, Michigan's replacement much the same way that Ryan Day was when Urban Meyer left and the third base comment kind of now rings true to their new coach. But I think that also the build that Michigan's probably going to have to to undergo here um, in the next year or so in order to try to maintain the success that they had is going to be a much steeper hill to climb than than maybe when Ryan Day took over for for Urban Meyer. So anyway, the one thing I will say before we let you out of here, Austin, is that I'm just kind of thankful that we're back in this place. I, I'm thankful for the sport that we all love and, and watch that, you know, the Michigan-Ohio State discussion is a 365-day affair now. That wasn't the case three or four years ago. And as painful as it was for Ohio State fans to endure the last few years and to watch their rival win a national championship – the one sliver of hope is that next time they win, they might actually appreciate it more than maybe some of the years that they won in the in the you know 2010 to 2019 years. So our um, recovered way too many Ohio State blowouts of Michigan over the years. He was sick of doing it. He wanted this to be a good game, and he's finally got that back again. Yeah, they were boring. So the, we're back. Um, you know, Jaden Davis is. Uh, coming in, and I don't know what's going to happen in terms of this portal window. Do you, have you heard anything about any players, you know, thinking twice about coming now after this news, or is that still no, to be seen? I, no, I, yeah, I mean, I think if Sharon Moore is the head coach, I don't, I don't see him losing a lot of guys. Um, I think they'll be able to keep the roster together. I think they'll keep their recruiting class together. I would expect him to be pretty active in the portal in April because, like we said, they've got a lot of a lot of holes to fill. But I think the priority is like, hey, let's keep this staff together. Let's keep this roster together. Um, try to just you know keep going in in the direction they've been going and build on what Jim Harbaugh did there. Yeah, we we had a discussion about the Big Ten hierarchy earlier on in the week with Scott Doctorman, and I still think that Michigan should probably firmly be in the top tier. Um, you know, if that changes yeah. moving forward, you know, I I don't think that you can project forward of of no, they won the national championship this year. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that three of the four playoff teams now have different coaches heading into the year, which means that uh, there's a lot to cover here in the offseason. So if you want to hear more about the Jim Harbaugh Chargers stuff from an NFL perspective, then we highly encourage you to go listen to the Robert Mays and Nate Tice on the athletic college or the athletic football show. Sorry, they're so close. The athletic football show. Um they have one of the best NFL podcasts on the face of the earth, and they're certainly going to be talking uh, deep with thoughts, insider knowledge, and and people in general to give uh, that an important listen. So go go check that out. So Austin, I appreciate you here. Good luck. I'm sure you have a lot of work to do. Congratulations on the column, and congratulations, frankly, making it through the Jim Harbaugh era the way you did. There's no access. He doesn't answer questions, and it's not an easy beat. So, so. The, 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 the real win, the real win, the real winner here will be the Michigan beat, who will probably have a coach who's more open to at least talking to the media. Yeah, you know. Although I will say, like, I, I was I was reflecting on it last night, and I was very conflicted. Like, there are certainly some things about Jim Harbaugh that I will not miss at all. There are some things I will miss. Like anytime you were in a room with Jim Harbaugh, you just didn't know what was going to happen. And that's yeah. very unusual in college football. And I don't think it'll be that way with Sharon Moore or whoever the coach is. So uh, I, I will like having uh, parts of my life back, but there are some things I will miss about. Yeah. Jim the one thing that's beneficial as a reporter, if the coach won't talk to the media or when he does and says like weird things that don't pertain to the question, 
that kind of frees you up to just write how you want to write. Uh, but on the other hand, too, uh, information gathering is a large portion of our jobs, and that should be an easier task for you moving forward. Austin, I thought you did a tremendous job covering the story throughout the playoff, and you've been certainly an asset to the show, and I, I appreciate you. Thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, Chris, we've got some some stuff to cover here. Um, I wrote a column last week. Let's get right into uh, the Ryan Williams commitment. Five-star prospect that um, – they temporarily lost uh, in the 2024 class when Nick Saban retired, has recommitted to Alabama. Um, I wrote a column last week um, basically just posing the question, how is Alabama going to approach recruiting under Caitlin DeBoer? And uh, general manager Courtney Morgan, we're talking about a head coach who, though was only a power five head coach for two years, had never signed a top 200 player going into a place that signed nine five-star prospects in a single class um, two years ago. And their first commitment, I think, unless I missed one, was a five-star player recommitting and and signing with Alabama. And I think that it is possible that this commitment might set the stage for the entire – like, you know how sometimes commitments can be symbolic? Like, this is a big, big deal. Like, not only proving that DeBoer can recruit at this level, but to retain somebody who was going there for Saban. I don't think this can be understated. Uh, look, it's huge for Alabama to to get what he was with the number six player in the country. I, I think he was really good yep. receiver. We know we know what Kalen DeBoer can do with skilled players. It is a huge readdition for Alabama. But in terms of crediting Kalen DeBoer and the staff for this, I feel like there's kind of an asterisk on it. They're they're they got a commitment there's from that a guy that again. Alabama already. <laughs> they're getting a commitment from a guy they already had a commitment to. They, they he'd already been to Alabama many times. He knew the whole thing. There was less ground to cover this time around than if it was starting from scratch. So it's a big addition. I don't know yet if this tells you yes, Kalen DeBoer is going to be able to recruit at that level or not. Uh, I'm I'm uh, completely on the opposite end of this. Really, uh, I I think that you have a five star player going back into the pool and then like every single top tier program in the country jumping into that pool with them. And then you end up getting him still. I think that that is a high leverage, high pressure situation um, that they were victorious in. And regardless of how they were able to do it, um, the alternative could have been and maybe should have been, he just leaves. And then you say, well, it's a new coaching regime. Let's hope to get him next year. Like to retain a player that way. And for him to be a five-star prospect, I thought was uh, highly valuable for where you think that that program is headed. Because honestly speaking, Chris, you know, if they do the accumulate talent through evaluation, uh, lower tier players, the way they did at Washington, they're going to get steamrolled and they're not going to make it. Uh, if they're able to readjust their recruiting strategy and, you know, go after some of those big fish that Alabama has routinely landed over the years. I think that that combined with their coaching ability, because nobody's like scoffing at their ability to draw football plays. Right. They should be a very right. good fit. So I think that this is a huge momentum shift in terms of, you know, a program that's been taking a lot of L's the last two weeks. I mean, they've lost a lot of players in the portal, um, you know, to lose a commitment that is this valuable only to retain him, I think, is a huge W in the win column going into the February signing period and then into the 2025 class. Yeah, no, like it's huge. I'm just not sure how much of a, m- a momentum shift it is. Yet it could turn out to be it, it might be right. I'm just not ready to say that yet. We'll see how the last February signing period goes. I know DeBoer was on the road yesterday. He called into Pat McAfee from from a car um, and then we've got the spring portal period as well. So that I think that'll give us a real sense of can this 
coaching staff do the talent accumulation that is needed. I just don't think getting a commitment back from a guy who had already committed to Alabama is as big of a leap as the leap that we know that they need to make. That's all. They, they had some other notable additions since we did our podcast last week. Uh, I think one of the best offensive linemen in the Pac-12, a center, Parker Brailsford, transferred in from Washington, followed them. They got um, cornerback Jambar Muhammad on a official visit. So, like, they do have some guys coming in um, from Washington and other places to try to fill some of the holes that, you know, they had. Because, honestly, Chris, they were in a bad place. Like, losing as much players as you did and having to, like, fill the roster up based on a portal that's closed for everybody else and then not being able mm-hmm. to take SEC players in the spring is a really, really tough look. Now, you know, they're doing the thing that I said that I didn't love that Jed Fish might be doing at Arizona and taking a lot of their assets um, right. away from Washington. And I, I think that stinks just as much as it would have stunk for Arizona. Um, but this is a, a win now and in, in no other option situation. And they might be in a position where they don't have an Alabama-like roster based on the on the depth they typically have which then makes it a lot difficult to get through that new SEC schedule without, you know, missing the playoff in the 12 team era, God forbid, or, or not competing for a national championship. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be curious real quick, how the quarterback situation works out there with um, Milrow being back and how he fits in what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Because also along these lines, Will Rogers, former Mississippi state quarterback had transferred to Washington went back into the portal. When Kalen DeBoer left, he didn't have, he didn't really have a place to go. He couldn't go to Alabama because Jalen Milrow was there. So he ends up going back to Washington. That's big for them. But I'm curious, Milrow's the guy, like he kind of has to be the guy. He, he he had a good year, you know, took him to the playoff, but his style is a lot different than what we've seen from Kalen DeBoer's quarterback. So um, him being the guy they're going with and Austin Mack behind him, presumably uh, will be interesting, but we won't really know that till spring and kind of see how it works. I think the real genius of a offensive guru, both him and Grubbs at, at offensive coordinator there, isn't so much drawing up plays for the players that you are, you know, based on their skill sets because they're really good. It's being able to adapt and adjust your game plan to draw up really cool plays and really creative plays and a great game plan for players who differ in style. So, you know, right. we've seen that at big time programs a lot who go from, you know, pocket passer to dual threat to pocket passer. Like you have to be able to adjust those things and, you know, maybe with with Kalen DeBoer's leadership, we'll see a huge jump out of Milrow as a as a passer. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm like just not remembering it correctly. Help me if I'm wrong here, Chris. But I kind of think I viewed Jalen Hurts the way that I currently view Jalen Milrow during the the year he got benched for Tua at halftime, where it's like mm-hmm. incredible athlete, got Alabama very far, was one of the s- engines of that team, but couldn't cut it as a passer. Um well enough to not get a freshman off the bench to help them win a national title that year. And then turns out to be one of the greatest single transformations I've ever seen. Well, you, and if you, you watch him, him you in the NFL in the hands, now, well, yeah. even, even Oklahoma, even Oklahoma, you put him in the hands yeah. of a coach, Lincoln Riley, who knows how to mold quarterbacks. And suddenly Jalen hurts became a better passer than we ever thought he was. He goes to the NFL. Same thing happens with Shane Steichen, the offensive coordinator with the Eagles at the time. And now hurts throws balls that other NFL quarterbacks can't throw. Right. So so, may, so so maybe DeBoer and Grubb will just simply tap into yeah. even more of what Jalen Milrow can do. Who's, Might be an interesting Heisman bet in the offseason, depending on what the odds end up being. But, yeah. you know, Alabama, I think, is going to be an ongoing discussion point and certainly one of the more interesting storylines as we head into the offseason and into the next season. So, um, okay, ACC schedule uh, takeaways. 
this is like your bread and butter, isn't it? Like you love this stuff. You love, love looking at grid. schedules. You, you love know when the they grid. give you the grid with every Did you study the grid? Team. I tried to. It's fun to kind of find things out. It's 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 this was a weird ACC schedule because we know SMU and Cal and Stanford are now in the conference. You've got SMU hosting Florida State pretty early in the season. I'm sure I'll be at that game. You might. Be I'm too. going to. You're not. We're not going <laughs> to get into that battle again. Uh, I'm going. That's good. That's I'm gonna going in writing. Cal, Cal's got Miami and NC State at home. Stanford gets Virginia Tech and Louisville at home and also has to go to Syracuse and to Clemson. I think the Syracuse game might be a Friday, if I don't recall correctly, but Stanford at Syracuse as a conference game is going to take some time to wrap my mind around. But aside from the travel, the notable games include Florida State gets Clemson at home October 5th. They got to go to Notre Dame later in the year. Clemson's got Georgia and Atlanta to open the season. I was going to say, did you look at Clemson's schedule, bro? Florida State on the road, (laughs) Louisville at home, no Miami, and then they got to finish with South Carolina at home. So they got a pretty tough schedule. The flip side, Syracuse, pretty easy schedule. They don't have Florida State or uh, Clemson, I believe. Uh, They got Georgia Tech, NC State, Virginia Tech were the only teams with winning conference records last year. So Fran Brown, first-year coach, could be – could be a, a team that makes a jump up next year after several years of fast starts and falling behind. They got Kyle McCord there now at quarterback. So very, very early, but I, I, I might buy some Syracuse stock. Yeah. I like their coach. I'm trying to get a story there. Um, also, we have to mention, I don't see here on the rundown, but I think it's important. Notre Dame is also playing five non-conference games against ACC opponents this year and four at home. Uh, they're hosting Louisville, um, Stanford, uh, Florida State, and Virginia at home, and then they're on the road at Georgia Tech in October. So Notre Dame is obviously, like always, going to have a huge ACC presence, and a lot of those are happening in South Bend next year, and that's another program that we're going to keep watching. Um, But, man, this is a very critical year for Clemson, and I know this isn't just ACC stuff, but getting Georgia on the schedule that way, uh, I know that they uh, are able to sidestep uh, Miami, which might be a big deal next year. We don't know in South Carolina. Is another non-conference game they have it. They got a pretty brutal schedule next year. And, yeah, look, you know, I mean, look, twelve-team era, but they're. I mean, Grace Rayner, our colleague, wrote a really good story earlier this week on kind of the state of Clemson and people who believe that they can get it back in some form, but also questioning. Look, they haven't had the same number. They haven't had the same quality of receivers. They are trying to get guys in the portal, but not getting them either like like did you read grace's story or just kind of how do you feel about clemson going into like you said is a a pretty big year where you're going to determine is it getting back on track or is it permanently down a couple tiers from what it was did you see the quote that dan lanning had this week about transfers i did not what he said i saw it swirling all around twitter it was basically just saying you can't win in today's college football if you don't supplement through the portal and i thought that that was correct and mm-hmm. I know I think Clemson attempted to get a few guys in the portal this year, which hasn't always been the case. And but they they don't do it, man. And you know it's like oh they don't have any receivers. Well, what are they going to do? Just have a number one draft pick at receiver to sprout up out of nowhere this year? Or are they going to go into next year with some of the same issues? I my issue with Clemson has been the same issue that I've noted for the last three years now. And if you go ask Andy Staples, my first appearance on his show, and maybe part of the reason why I'm on the show now is I called the demise of Clemson like four years ago. 
And it was the first appearance I ever had on the Andy Staples show. And I think he was like, holy crap, I can't believe this man just said this. But it's just like sometimes college football is complicated. I think Michigan illustrated that this year, that sometimes the people are more important than the numbers in a spreadsheet. But I think there's so much to be learned from the moves that coaches make. And I just don't think that Clemson is making enough moves. My initial take was about the quality of recruiting that they had and how it was falling far behind the teams that they were expected to beat. And I know that they are the exception to the rule in their 2016 and 18 national titles in terms of total team talent. But being the exception to the rule is a really hard thing to maintain. And we found out that they right. can't maintain that. And then now on top of and it. And I think, I think Michigan will find that out too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to be the exception of the rule. It's glamorous and glorious in the in, in the time being. But what do you think, you know, going into next year, who's the favorite in the Ohio State-Michigan game? It's Ohio State again. Um, and Ohio State's going to be this monster every year because they recruit that way. That point never changed. But Clemson was going to be expected to beat Alabama or win a national championship or play at that level every year. And they're not recruiting at that level. And now not only are they not recruiting at that level, they're not taking in supplemental pieces to plug the holes on their roster to fix that. So they're getting worse. Um, and now they're just last year, they were just a solid team. Although they're a great team, they were a solid team. And if that's what Clemson is, Clemson's always been solid. Clemson was great for those years. Are they ever going to be great again? What and, behavioral and, and again, pattern are you seeing from their coaching staff, Chris, right now that makes you think they can be great again? The takes we are going to have after that opener in Georgia, in Atlanta against a they Georgia might lose team by thirty might, for all we that know. might be it might be preseason number one. Carson Beck's back. A lot of guys are back. That's going to be a favorite team. If Clemson that first game gets spanked, people are going to be turning on. on, on I mean, even again, the fact that you're considering that right now is a complete and utter revelation of what we're talking about here. Because if 2017 they were playing. You know, Georgia was really talented then, too. We wouldn't be talking like this. But the fact that you're even bracing yourself for that is an illustration of the issue. And I don't think yeah. that anything. And this is the thing that I've had a hard time with with Michigan fans, because people are throwing tweets back in my face from like 2020. Like, ha, look at you, idiot. Oh, ha, ha. Look, you didn't see this coming. It's like, of course, I didn't see it coming. It was spectacular. It was unexpected. It was unforeseen. The only thing that we can do as sports writers and podcasters in the moment is to take the information that is readily available to us and make analysis based on that information. Is it going to be right 100% of the time? Absolutely not. It's hard. If I could tell the future, I would be on a yacht with Jordan Belfort and throwing money at people. Like That's what I would be doing if I could tell the future. I can't. Um, but don't throw – when something spectacular happens or unexpected happens, you can't throw analysis from five years ago into somebody's face and be like, hey, you're an idiot. You were wrong. Something spectacular happened. What is happening at Clemson right now from an anal analytical standpoint that you can point to as a reporter and a college football expert that says this is the thing that they are doing that's going to turn it around? Because I don't have an answer for that question. Right. And again, tough schedule with ACC, Florida State on the road again, um, South Carolina, not ACC game, but two SEC non-conference games, Louisville at home. Going to be a lot to watch for, for the ACC and Clemson, okay. who will uh, once again be one of the favorites. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. 
And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Why don't we go to the mailbag now? And we've been promising you guys uh, voicemail clips and questions. Please forgive us for not getting to them sooner. It has been uh, an eventful month, to say the least. But we are going to do our best uh, to continue to make this a fixture on our shows. Even if we're putting a pause to the Sunday sound off shows going into the offseason, we're going to do our best on Monday uh, with me to do that. So the phone number, just to remind you before we get into it, is 316-462-9852. You can call or text that number. Uh, we will certainly favor the voicemail. So Cam, why don't you hit the first voicemail and we'll get into it. This is Will calling from Northern Virginia. Big fan and love what you guys do. I went to Virginia Tech. I'm a proud Hokie. And not too many episodes ago, I remember Ari asking, is Virginia Tech a dead program? Uh, far from it. My hot take, winning the ACC, or maybe, maybe we sneak in as an at-large. And let me tell you why. Look, two years ago, if you said Virginia Tech was dead, I probably would agree with you. Really started week four this year starting Kyron Drones over Grant Wells. Kyron Drones, I mean, just watch the guy play. He is electric. and. The second he came in, we finally had a chance in these games that we were dropping that we shouldn't have. On top of that, we're returning almost every starter on both sides of the ball, aside from a couple graduating seniors. And also, I don't think you know this, but don't call us Va Tech. We're VT, we're Virginia Tech, we're Tech, we're not Va Tech. Next time you're down in Blackford, don't say Va Tech. And you know what? Maybe we'll give you a ride from what you described as a very long walk from the stadium to the press parking lot. Go Hokies. And I hope to hear this on the show. Thanks so much for calling in. We appreciate it. I learned two things. One, I did not know you can't say Votek. You learn those things. <laughs> yes. But I, I yes. messed up uh, UCF a few times. Were you the one telling me I can't? No, that was Dave. I think I called them the golden we've, we've Knights a few times. The, we've all been yeah, hit by UCF, UCF at wave. some point. I didn't know Votek was a, a sticking point. So I'll do my best not to say that anymore. VT. And I will say before you answer the question, Chris, that, you know, when you're the old thing, when like old people tell you back in my day, I used to walk to school back and forth in the snow uphill both ways. Like that was the only walk I've ever experienced at Virginia Tech where you were walking uphill both ways. It was also a very hot <laughs> September day. And I had gone from seeing a girlfriend up in the northeast down the day of the game and I was hung over. It was just a miserable walk and I'll never forget it. That was the 2015 Ohio State. Virginia Tech opener where Braxton Miller did that spin move and I was spin move, not yep. feeling good. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I think that that's a good point. When they got drones, I was like, that kid can play like he's raw, but he can play. And I think that he had a really good second half of the year. What's your take on Virginia Tech? I look at their schedule right now, speaking of ACC schedules, and I don't really see anything that's that daunting. They get Clemson at home and they have to play Miami on the road, but every other game on their schedule looks winnable in the 12 team era. That can mean something. Yeah. And, and that, that message part part of these are hot takes uh, from fans about their teams yeah. that uh, that already asked for and so you're right like look Virginia Tech I thought they were dead under Brent Pry they had a rough first season they start last year one and four they lose to Marshall Rutgers and Purdue and you're thinking yee this thing may never get back to what it is then they finish the year very strong you beat Tulane in the bowl game. Uh, played NC State close, beat uh, Syracuse and, and Boston College. There is a lot of momentum there, and a lot of guys are coming back. So I think this is very much a team on the upswing. The 2024 schedule uh, does not have Florida State, although they get Clemson at home. They got to go to Miami. They also have Marshall again. So make sure you win that Marshall game in week two, by the way. But the schedule is 
pretty doable, I, I, I think. Well, what do you say? Uh, win the ACC? I don't think I would go that far, but, you know, Florida State's going to take a step back. We just talked about Clemson. It does feel pretty open. I just, I need to see it against some better teams, though. They finished last year strong. Momentum's good. I need to, I need to see it be like a top-level ACC team before I fully buy into that. All right, let's go to the next one. Hi, Until Saturday, friends. This is Sam, a long-suffering Nebraska fan. Stop me if you've heard this before, but uh, I am drinking the off-season Kool-Aid for Nebraska. I think that they have uh, added enough interesting pieces with the portal, with you know, Jamal Banks, Isaiah Nayor. Um, they're bringing back a, a ton of guys on defense um, that was actually a sneaky good unit last year. And... Um, of course, Dylan Rayola. So I, I'm, my hottest take is that Nebraska is going to win eight or more games, and I'm probably going to regret this because every time I start to believe is when they they kill me the, the harshest. Uh, and I think looking at Nebraska's schedule, though, unlike last year where they opened with two Power Five opponents at Minnesota and at Colorado, the schedule is just a lot a lot nicer, and I'll let you guys take a look. You know what I thought was great about Nebraska, and I think that obviously signing the number one quarterback in the country helps. Yeah, but probably. The first half of the year, it felt like Nebraska was losing games, and maybe a little bit even. Didn't they lose the Iowa game in a weird way too uh, at the end of the year with that weird pick at the end? But they were losing yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, games yeah. that the looked turnovers. a lot like Scott Frost losses, in yeah. the sense of like close one possession games where somebody muffs a punt or a stupid penalty or. They ended like, the I year. Feel, they ended the year with four straight one possession losses. Yes. Yes. So, like to me, my whole take with Nebraska always was: you have a coach now, and Matt Rule that can eliminate the grab ass, and you can actually just play like assignment oriented, clean football. Because I always feel like Nebraska more even so than personnel, because they've always had pretty good personnel. Is that if they could get a coach in there that can match, you know the probably top half of the big 10 personnel with competence that that would just equate naturally to eight games. I mean, if you go look at the way that the big 10 West was a year ago, I mean, it's really not that hard to win eight games out of the big 10 West. If you have a pretty good team or it used to be now that's dead. So you look at Nebraska schedule and I know they have a week two game against Colorado. Um, but if you look at their first six weeks of the season, they've got UTEP, Colorado, Northern Iowa, Illinois, Purdue and Rutgers, and then Indiana. That's what that's eight games or seven games. Seven, like they could almost the get there. They could probably win five of the first seven games at the very least if they have a pretty good team that plays assignment-oriented football. Then you have Ohio State, UCLA, USC, Wisconsin, and Iowa. The second half of their schedule is a, a, a beatdown. Um, but if they can get healthy and play good football, like I think their schedule sets up quite nicely in a pretty tough conference to get to that eight-win threshold. Now, obviously, a lot's going to you know play into the factor of how good your quarterback they had some major, major quarterback issues last year, and I assume that Dylan Rayola is going to start from day one. Like, So you have a true freshman quarterback. I don't care how good he is. You're going to have to take some lumps with that. Um, but I don't think it's that crazy to think that. I thought they could have won eight games last year if they eliminated the bull crap, but they didn't. So I'm sure Matt Rule in year two will be able to do that. But if like they come out and muff punts and turn the ball over in weird ways and throw picks when you shouldn't be throwing it at all, and like lose these weird Nebraska like games again. Like I'm just going to think the place is cursed. Cause it's like, those are usually elements from a coach that can't just be a constant with the players in the program under new leadership and talent. So uh, what's your take on Nebraska, Chris? 
Yeah, so like it was a weird season last year. They they lose to Minnesota opener, had a late turnover. They lose to Colorado the next week. You think it's a mess. But then they win five of their next six. They beat Illinois. They beat Northwestern. Purdue, the defense looks really good. And you're thinking mm-hmm. Nebraska, hey, they've turned the corner. You only need one win out of your last four, and two of those are Michigan State and Maryland. You should be able to do this. They lose that game in East Lansing against a Michigan State team that was down bad that had fired Mel Tucker and was in a tailspin and that created a tailspin of its own for Nebraska where they, which I think you could say is their worst loss of the year by far. If you look at their season last year, I mean, I guess losing to Maryland in a 13 to 10 games, not pretty, but getting beaten by that Michigan state team with the way that they were, they were spinning a little bit. There was a really rough look. And and so you look at 2024 and you think you're going to want to get You'd really, really like to get six wins out of that first seven. If you don't have six wins going into Ohio State to start that stretch, I'd be concerned. And there there are teams when you look at their schedule, you realize, oh, this is a team that's going to get a hot start. It's going to get a top 25 ranking. People are going to be riding high, but we're going to know they haven't been tested yet. Every year when you look at schedules, you know there are some teams like that. That's Maryland every year. That's Maryland every year. It's Syracuse every year. That's what Nebraska is going to be next year 2024 if you if you the colorado game is going to be huge it's a big rivalry game deon sanders a lot of narratives are going to come out of that if you can win that game start four and oh or so then like really get some momentum going they're going to need to do it because the back half of that season is going to be a wreck like we've seen what they do to iowa it just typically doesn't work out for nebraska against iowa so what what do you say? Eight wins. I I would take the under right now, just because freshman quarterback. We haven't yet seen a team that can do the type of things that it needs to be. The schedule is kind of favorable. I think the order of it makes it feel more favorable than it really is. Also, dare to dream that he's just awesome. Rayola. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's part of the game. We'll we'll see. I, I I'm I've been on the record as one of those people who's a little skeptical of a guy who transferred four times in high school and had what three or four commitments in his recruiting process. The track record of that is typically not great. So we'll see. But yeah, we'll see if he wins the job too. I mean, we got to see that uh, as well. But. There is talent there. I really like their defense too. Like they, they really made strides at that at that spot last year, and I imagine that'll be pretty good uh, once again. Okay, we we have some written ones too, and we're going to get to those. But why don't we just knock out the the voicemails first, and then we'll get to it, Cam? Why don't you do the next one? Hey, this is Alan down in New Orleans. I uh, love the show. Uh, just wondering that you know, in the past five to ten years, it seems like college football podcasts and TV shows are more devoted to the business than they ever were before. And if everybody's listening to the business of college football, then how come we're still getting people who don't understand basic antitrust things that you can't make these kids pay penalties and you can't cap coaching salaries unless they're in a union? I just don't get how people can listen to this stuff all day and not understand these basic things. I didn't know these things 10 years ago, but I knew them like one year after all this started. I don't know why people just aren't learning these things. Uh, I'm not an antitrust player or anything. But it just seems like people should know the basics by now. All right, thanks. It's complicated. You know, I I, I look at a lot of the comments on Twitter and stuff, and I, I sometimes think that a large majority of college football fans, not the ones who listen to the show, but just are unaware of the general surroundings. 
like, I, I don't know. It's a very, like when you start getting into the word antitrust, you start to get like that social studies feeling where it's like, I don't know if I'm ready for the exam. Um, and even for me, sometimes it's like, oh, I've got to have like discussions with my editor about what is reasonable and what isn't, um, you know, it, it's a tough thing, but you know, as you get closer to like employment discussion and collective bargaining agreements, these are like buzzwords that most people just don't come across very often. And I can understand why, if you're just dipping into a show or you're not consuming it at the level of other people, that it would be a hard thing to grasp. Chris, what's your take on that? Yeah, look, man, people are busy with their lives. <laughs> so some, sometimes if you're a fan, you just want to know who's on your team and if, if you're going to win. You know, like some people just got too much stuff going on in their life to really understand what antitrust means for for college athletes. Um, so I, I, I think it is. So like the explanation is. You can't create a system. And basically kind of set rules and limits and stuff like that if they're not employees and basic things. An example is that there used to be something called the restricted earnings coach. And that got shot down in the mid nineties in a court case that said, you can't restrict the earning power of coaches. And so that's the kind of stuff that's coming up now with players. Are you a monopoly? Do you have too much control? Is there proper competitive advantage or are you putting in too many guardrails that are restricting various things? So I have read more court cases and legal arguments this past football season than I did actual stories about football because just it's so much of the sport now and we're covering this stuff all the time. And I was just in Phoenix at the NCAA like convention and it's all everybody's talking about. What are the courts going to do? Can we do this? And, and it's, it's boring. First of all, I don't think fans are paying too much attention because it is boring and it's legal mumbo jumbo and you got other stuff going on. So we've tried to do, and I think we have done a good job at that at the athletic and breaking these things down. Nicole and I, Nicole Auerbach and I handle a lot of uh, that stuff. But the general basis being they're not going to put any more restrictions on players because they're already being sued multiple times over various things, over transfers, over NIL, over employment status. They're not anything they've pulled back. They're not putting back. They're not they're not putting back in transfer restrictions. They're not uh, changing the targeting rule like they're doing a lot of these things. Uh, because players are getting more uh, rights and agency and all these types of things. And to stave off future lawsuits, that's the direction it's going to be. That's the thing to take away is that you may be upset that players are making money. Players are doing this. It's not going away until we have something like employment, collective bargaining, that type of deal. I am curious, and I don't know if it's ever going to get to this point, but there is a lot of, you know, when you start talking about like, restricting income potential. I'm very curious if somebody after five or six years sues the NCAA because their earning potential from NIL is greater than in the professional market. If they're not an NFL player and like how that that is going to impact like your eligibility range. That's the basis for this transfer lawsuit that came, came from some of the state attorneys generals saying by making somebody sit out a year for transferring a second time, you are restricting their NIL earning capabilities. So yeah, I thought I thought Talia might be the person to do that. Um, right. It appears he's not, which is by having any eligibility limits, are you restricting somebody's earning power if they're going to make more money in college than they are the NFL and these types of things? And then suddenly you're or just a Ford minor state league. farm for some of these guys. I mean, not suddenly, everybody's going yeah. to the NFL. Yeah. So, suddenly you are just independent professional sports league at that point. 
I don't know when or if that's going to happen. I do think somebody will probably challenge it at some point, and that'll really blow the top off of whatever the heck college sports is supposed to be. And it is concerning, yeah. I think, for a what lot happens of us if who a love. Five-year NFL veteran decides, hey, uh, you know, I'm a practice squad player, but you know, I'm really good. I'm going to enroll in grad school and go back to college. Then what? You're allowed to go to college and get degrees. <laughs> yeah, you can go to you college know, whenever you want, want, regardless so of what you that, did. That, that's. So, that's the type of thing that's potentially down the road. And it is concerning for fans who just love college football for what it has been and don't like a lot of the change. And uh, I can understand the frustration. I can understand not paying attention closely to it because it feels far off or you just, you got other stuff going on in your life. Yeah. We have a Florida hot take. Let's get to um, from MSD, Nicole ESQ. I think that this means Esquire, right? Like you're, you're a smart lawyer. Yes, uh, I think who could have just fast forwarded through the explanation on the last question, but he said, Billy Napier will be fired before UGA, uh, the UGA game, I should say, or they will go 10 and two. There was absolutely no in between. Uh, I, I disagree that there's no in between. Um, so here are the games before Georgia, Samford, Texas A&M at Mississippi state, UCF, Tennessee, Kentucky. Seven games, two bye weeks in there. Games that I think are all winnable. They beat Tennessee last year. You know, like they, they've beaten Kentucky before. I think you could see them win those games. You could see them lose three games in there. In which case, is he fired before the Georgia game? There is a bye week before the Georgia game. And sometimes when you fire a coach, you do it the week before. Uh, you do it during a bye week because then you have more time. However... I don't know if that really works in the transfer portal era because if you fire a coach at any time, the portal opens and maybe dudes just bail during the season. Michigan State almost had that happen last year. So I I, I disagree with the take that it's got to be one or the other. But could you tell me he'd be fired before the Georgia game if they lose to Texas A&M, Tennessee, and Kentucky? Yeah, I think they could. Yeah, I think what he's saying is either going to be a huge disaster or it's going to be a huge... Sorry, we're, someone was vacuuming in my house. I said, I think he's just trying to say that it's either going to be a huge disaster or a great success. And I just like, I don't know, like, if, like, what's in between getting fired and 10 and 2? It might be like 6 and 6, and that might get him fired. So, like, six that's and six, like the, 6 and 6 might. I mean, if you, but you're like 8 and 4? Like, I don't think 8 and 4 Billy Neighbor gets fired, right? I don't know. That back that back half of the schedule. By the way, this is how Florida People finishes are mad. the season. People get mad, and it's been it's been a while. Speaking, speaking of teams that could have a hot start and finish poorly because of the schedule, this is how Florida finishes the season. Georgia at Texas, LSU, Ole Miss at Florida State. Oh that boy. is a gauntlet. Yeah. They start if, if you can go eight, if you can go eight and four through all that, I think he's okay. Yeah. I mean, they're also starting the season with Miami and then play AM. Uh, in week three, so it kind of starts rough too. Because like I don't oh, know. Yeah, what wait, why is that? Be, yeah, why is that Miami game not on here? That's weird. Yeah, the schedule must not be right. It's actually. a week zero game. It's on August thirty first. Maybe that's why FBS um, schedules is missing this. Stunningly, good call. Yeah. So yeah, that's an important thing to to track. But yeah, we'll see how it goes. And you know, obviously, I think Florida's uh, one of the lasting important storylines next year because you know. People have kind of been waiting for that to happen and and whether or not it happens or not is uh, important at a place like that. So I think we have one more uh, voicemail from Michigan recruiting via Lester, I think. Hey guys, Lester Wilkins from Portland, Michigan. Love the show. 
Uh, my question for you guys is, after the national championship, uh, what do you think Michigan's ceiling is for recruiting, high school recruiting? Um, can they be a top three class like Ohio State, Georgia, or uh, Alabama? Or uh, where do you guys see their ceiling for recruiting? And what do they need to do to uh, recruit uh, in the top five consistently? Thank you, and go blue. So this is this gets me into trouble, Chris, because I started off the show – you know, I'm on was Team yeah. Michigan, and now I'm I'm I I always thought this. I always thought that Michigan had every single identifiable marketing tool to get a good class. It's a wonderful education. If you've been to Ann Arbor, it's a wonderful town. Um, they've got great uniforms. They're Jordan brand. They play an iconic stadium. They have Big Ten money. They shell out for their coaches, and they have facilities and nutrition and everything. Like they are a storied program. So we've seen many times Michigan finish in the eight to 12 range. And it just feels like there's an extra gear to be hit there that they're just not hitting. And part of me always wanted to know, like, is the reason for that? Because Jim Harbaugh's weird. Like, do you not have a closer on your staff? Cause he's just a, an odd person. Um, are academic standards too high? I don't know that I buy that. I think that a lot of the players at Ohio state took um, in the first five years of, of, Jim Harbaugh's tenure would have all but certainly been takes at Michigan. Um, so my thought process always was that they should be, and they never did, which is part of the reason why I used to think that they were settling for mediocrity. I used to think that Michigan's recruiting results were the main reason why they stinked or they stunk. Right. Sorry. Obviously they transcended that. Now that is um, again, the exception to the rule. And I don't know if the exceptions are going to be more common moving forward in the era of the transfer portal. Um, but they were more talented than people gave credit for. Like Doug LaMaurice was on the show earlier this week, and he he made a good point that, you know, they did a very good job of getting some top-tier talent on their roster. And the thing that I like about Michigan the most is that most of those big-time guys hit. Blake Corum hit. Mm -hmm. Donovan Edwards hit. J.J. McCarthy hit. Will Johnson hit. They hit on their big players. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do. You know, going back to the Clemson talk, it's hard to be the exception. Um, so to me, it's always thought, like, who are they going to hire is probably the number one question before – we get to the real answer to this, but if it is Sharon Moore, um, does he recruit a more aggressive style to put Michigan in that place where when they win a national championship or beat Ohio State that there isn't a huge drop-off? Because like we're anticipating that Michigan might be a 6-7 win team next year based on who they lost in the coaching situation and who they're losing um, on the field. And Ohio State doesn't take dips that way because they don't recruit at a way that allows them to take dips. Their bad seasons are 10 and 2. Like, will we ever get to a point where Michigan's bad season is 10 and 2? And do you think that they have a ceiling high enough to recruit at that level, Chris? Well, first off, uh, to the caller, shout out to Port Huron, Michigan. Uh, big fan of the town, nice area. Uh, cross Port Huron when I go to Canada all the time up in Michigan and uh, played some hockey tournaments there. Beautiful place. The other so like the other factor though that hung over Jim Harbaugh's recruiting over the last couple of years was that we knew he was going to go to the NFL. That probably played a role as well. Players mm -hmm. going, hey, this coach, I know he's not going to be there in four years. I know he's going to the NFL. I, I think that could be a factor as well. Sharon Moore is thirty-seven years old. He may have to remake a good chunk of the staff, and if he does. Uh, what kind of recruiters does he get? Uh, what, what what stuff does he do there? What momentum does Michigan get in NIL through the national championship to be able to recruit at that tippy top level? That Those are the questions we don't know. I, I think it's possible. Uh, I just think there's a lot of questions around it. Can they hit? 
at the same rate? Can they evaluate at the same rate? Can they develop at the same rate? At the same time, that doesn't mean they can't recruit at a higher level. So I, I think I think it's a major question mark. It's something they're going to need to do. Jim Harbaugh is one of the greatest coaches of this modern era, period, because of what he's done in the NFL and college. And so you can't count on that evaluation and that development to hit year after year now that he's gone. So you would like to recruit at a top five level instead of a top eight level. And for Michigan, like we said, to sustain what it's doing in a conference that's going to have Oregon and Ohio State and maybe USC doing what they do in recruiting every year uh, to sustain what Michigan has built. Yeah, they're going to have to do that. Although it will help to have a 12 team playoff where you can lose two games and still potentially go on a run at the end. Your favorite thing. My favorite thing. Um, okay, let's go to the final question. This is an Apple question. Before we get to that question, a few people posted in the chat, and I'm just now seeing on Twitter that Noah Carter, who I believe was a top 250 player from Arizona who was committed to Washington or signed with Washington, is transferring to Alabama to play with DeBoer. So that's another pickup to plug a hole there on um, Alabama's roster. Um, okay, the last question is an Apple review question, and it should give everybody here an opportunity to know that if you leave a five-star review and ask a question, we will answer your your questions on the show. We could use some five-star reviews. Promoting the show is always a good thing. This is from TKQB7. Isn't there an unintended consequence of the current setup of the 12-team playoff format starting next year? With a new Big Ten and SEC, 14 of the 18 true national championship contending programs are either in the SEC or the Big Ten. Surely most title contenders would prefer the fact would prefer the path to a title from the five seed than the one seed in the new format. The five seed would have a path to the semi of 12 of the 12 seed G five team at home and a big 12 champ, Utah or Kansas from this past year in a neutral site. Whereas the one seed has to play a presumably bigger title favorite at a large or at large in the quarterfinals, like in Ohio state, Texas or Oregon. Wouldn't this incentive to undefeated in the sec or big 10 to lose on purpose because one of them would get the one seed and one would get the five and meet in the semifinal anyway. It's crazy that a five seed would be preferable to a one seed. Do you view this as a, um, just so I understand this, the five seed doesn't get a bye week, right? No, the five seed would then play the four seed. The five seed would play likely the G5 team as a 12, and you win that game and you'd play the four seed, who most years might be the big 12 champion. As opposed to, to the one playing seed who the has one to play seed, the which is the best eight, team in college football, which is the right. eight. Yeah, it, it, the one seed the, would have to play an eight nine. Yeah, I think that he's probably be right. I don't know if you asked a coach, would you rather play an extra game or have to play play the easier route? I think I would probably take the easier route. What about you? It, it I don't want to say unintended consequence, but it is. I wish they could do reseeding round to round. Like, that's what the NFL does. That's mm-hmm. what the NHL used to do. That way, the top seed always has that advantage. I am curious if it is something they consider moving forward. Um, but logistically it does, speaking, it's just more of a nightmare in the college ranks than it is for the pros too, right? Yeah, depending on what the turnaround is and who you're scouting and preparing for and stuff like that. It's a little bit different. Like in the ticket NFL sales too. I don't know, bigger stadiums and stuff. I don't know. Like people want to know, like if your team's going to the Rose Bowl far in advance, I think. I I do. Yes, I do think conference realignment and the expansion of the playoff are separate things that happened. I don't think realignment happened because of the expansion of the playoff, because it 
it, conference realignment happened because of the state of television money and it's shrinking and it only going to the biggest places, which includes the Big Ten and the SEC. Oklahoma and Texas, their playoff chances would have been better if they had stayed in the Big 12 and continued to win that and get a bye every year. Going to the SEC makes it harder for them. So I, I don't think the expansion of the playoff is something for people. To, like a lot of people complaining about all this change to college football and they're blaming it on the CFP expansion and the focus on the national championship. That is separate. Realignment happened because of television money going to specific conferences. So I, I think that is kind of a disconnect that needs to be made. But it does. But because of the realignment that then happened afterward, including suddenly the destruction of the Pac-12, it does change how we view the 12-team bracket, where we know the four Power Four champions are going to have a bye every year. And you're going to have really good SEC and Big Ten teams, Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State, one of those teams sitting there at number five suddenly, and they're going to have a potentially easier path to the semifinal where you play the G5 team and then potentially the Big 12 champion. So it is something I'm curious if um, the playoff looks at things potentially moving forward after a couple of years of seeing how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like the idea of reseeding too. It's a perfect world. But as we found out in college football, no change is ever <laughs> ever happens without consequence or weirdness ensuing. And that's why we love the sport so much. So Chris, thanks so much for tagging along for an hour. And thank everybody so much for uh, joining us live on the YouTube channel uh, means the world to us until Saturday uh, is going to a two time a week sequence or cadence, I should say during the off season. So you'll be able to catch us uh, twice a week at the beginning and the end of each regular week. Um, be sure to follow the podcast on Apple or review listen to your podcasts. And also if you're listening in podcast form, catch us on YouTube. If you want to get your episodes early and to watch us live and see our beautiful faces. Uh, thank you so much to Austin Meek, our Michigan beat writer, who has done a tremendous job covering the Michigan season, the scandal, the the departure of Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers, all that stuff. We've got great coverage on theathletic.com. Be sure to check that out. Um, until then, we will see you guys next week. That was the latest edition of Until Saturday.